I'm Kane Jackson, and this is Chasing Financial Equality, a show where we ask what's getting in the way of the equal opportunities that so many people have fought for. We speak to leading thinkers and a few familiar names and address the obstacles of yesterday that are standing in the way of progressive social policy today, all in pursuit of just one big question. What's the point of fixing climate for the future if only a few of us can afford to live there? This episode of Chasing Financial Equality is proudly brought to you from our new home, Work Club. They're Australia's premier flexible workspace for individuals and startups through to large companies. It's work, but reimagined. Today I'm joined from Amsterdam by Dr. Melanie Ryback. Melanie has been described as one of the nine most innovative women in the European Union and has received global recognition and awards for her work and research in computer sciences. She's the CEO and co-founder of the world's first not-for-profit computer security company. But more than that, she's an esteemed and respected academic who is well known for her publicly available lectures on post-growth entrepreneurship, which she delivers at the University of Amsterdam for students studying sustainability and economics. Melanie is also the co-founder and CEO of Nonprofit Ventures, the world's first incubator for post-growth and regrowth-inspired startups that have unique impact-minded equity structures and steward ownership at their core. At Nonprofit Ventures, Melanie and her colleagues educate investors and finance professionals about non-extractive finance. This is of particular interest to us because our startup's mission is to remove the extractive elements from the finance industry and turn it into the world's largest publicly owned utility that serves the interests of humanity instead of extracting from it for the benefit of a few. In her 2019 TED Talk, Melanie shared her vision for reforming the startup business model and said, business can be one of the most effective forms of activism, but we're not taught to think about it in this way. We're taught to think about business as a vehicle for commercial shareholders, but there can be so much more and we need new models. Melanie, welcome. What is post-growth economics and why should people care about it? Post-growth economics is essentially questioning, is growth good, right? <laughs> Because we always think that more is better, bigger is always preferable, and also in terms of economic growth, that gross domestic product is also always desirable. And yet, we're living in an era where, as the GDP grows, we're putting more pressure onto the environment, also onto societies, and we're starting to see that this is no longer sustainable. We're finding ourselves now in the midst of multiple poly crises. And the problem is that if you ask the question of, well, why growth? Why do we always have to grow? <laughs> why is it that we can't just stay the same and be okay? And the answer is financial extraction. So you've already hit on this point and you've also made it your own personal mission. But there is so much extraction happening from our economy that the economy needs to continue growing just to maintain a steady state. And this is the reason why, you know, if the economy stops growing or God forbid it starts declining, we start finding ourselves in a place of austerity, layoffs, really bad <laughs> conditions for the people. And that sort of begs the question, not just of why growth, but also how can we thrive when we're not growing? <laughs> And that actually is not even a hypothetical question because frequently we're in economic conditions where it's not growing. Sometimes we find ourselves in a recession and we need to be able to thrive in those conditions as well. 
It's the same idea with degrowth. People hear the word degrowth and they get really scared because they think, oh, but then I have to sacrifice everything and we have to like give up our iPhones and live in caves. And that's not it. Really, to me personally, the way that I see it is that addresses the question of how can we live also in economically declining conditions and still be okay. And that really requires decoupling the economy from that financial extraction just to ensure that we have other drivers of prosperity. And this requires also other kinds of social networks, economic networks, but then ones that are not as usurious as what we have at the moment. That being said, a lot of people on the degrowth side talk a lot about consumption and sufficiency. And if we consider it, a lot of this consumptive behavior is driven by corporations and their marketing departments. A lot of the drive to consume is built into the products that we're buying. And of course, companies are financially incentivized to do this. So if we want to address the consumption problem, I mean, you can try and guilt trip consumers, but it's really not going to get you anywhere. And a lot of people who don't want the status quo to change will precisely take the stance of guilt tripping consumers rather than looking at systemically how this is coming about because they know that laying the blame and placing the onus of change on consumers, that's a non-starter. Whereas if we place the blame where the blame belongs, and that is essentially with business and with the finance industry, <laughs> we can build products that are not going to break as quickly. We can focus our marketing towards getting people to buy one thing, stick with it for a while rather than changing to the next thing every season. And companies like Fairphone, for example, are demonstrating that with things like repairability, modularity also in their designs. I'm not saying that they're completely fixing everybody's wanting to have the next model, but if you can get the next model by just replacing a small piece rather than by replacing the whole thing, why not? In that sense, it's a kind of thinking and innovation that I think can and should be driven by business. But right now, business as a whole, except for a very small part of the social enterprise ecosystem, doesn't really find this problem to be interesting. You speak about the word degrowth being a scary word. I think there are a lot of scary words and terminology in this space. I think to a lay person, the word economics is a scary word. And even to me for a long time, post tertiary education, the word economics was, I guess, a field that I had no place in because it was perceivably too complex. But if we break down financial extraction, we've spoken about this financial extraction of our broader economy or our society. What do you mean by financial extraction? What's going on that we need to be aware about? In terms of financial extraction, when we're talking about financial extraction from our economy, that really begs the question of what is an economy, right? An economy is a meta-concept, and it consists of businesses, of course, also consumers, governments, educational institutions. We all collectively form the economy. So if you want to create a post-growth or degrowth or financially non-extractive economy, you then have to ask the question of, well, how do I then create a post-growth or degrowth or financially non-extractive business? Because without understanding how to tr transform business, we're not going to be able to transform the economy. So then taking things one abstraction layer down from the macroeconomic level to the meso level of business, then the next question really becomes, what does it actually mean to make a company post-growth or degrowth? And how would you actually eliminate financial extraction from a company? 
Now, I think that in a way, the terms post-growth and also degrowth are missing the point because what it's doing is it is putting the emphasis on growth, right? But I think growth is not necessarily the point because one would ask, okay, but if it's a post-growth or degrowth business, then you need to limit growth, right? You need to cap growth. You need to, for example, we can grow to a certain number of employees and not larger, a certain amount of revenue and not larger. And that's not actually it, at least not to me. What we need to understand is that financial extraction is the root cause of the need for never-ending growth. And we can see this, for example, by looking into the business models of venture capitalists. If you consider exponential growth, and exponential growth is really the holy grail as it's presented to startup founders, you need to ask the question, why? Like, what is the purpose of this exponential curve? What is it actually that we're trying to achieve? So by the sheer mathematical nature of exponentiality, you can't keep it up for very long, right? <laughs> because at a certain point, you'd be growing so fast that you just practically can't do anything with it. But if you step back and think about it rationally, well, actually, the only purpose for that exponential growth curve is to reach the point of exit within a discrete amount of time, preferably five to seven years. So what happens after that exit is immaterial because at that point, the initial shareholders have cashed out and at a certain point, it's going to stabilize. As Kate Rayworth says, there's only one thing in nature that grows exponentially forever and it's cancer and it's toxic to any ecosystem that it's living upon. So why would that inform how we do business? <laughs> so we instead need to think in terms of flat growth curves. And Kate Rayworth also explains this with an elegant example from nature. If you have a tree at the beginning of its life, it grows exponentially, right? Almost. <laughs> but at a certain point, that growth flattens out because it's becoming an adult tree. And if it wants to get bigger, it can't grow bigger anymore. It's reached its maximum size, but it instead drops seeds. And those seeds form new little trees. <laughs> and then the whole cycle repeats. And her question is, if this is how nature does it, then why is it any different with our businesses? And the funny thing is, this brings us back to even just spiritual and religious principles like subsidiarity from the Catholic Church, basically just saying that if you're going to be growing, only get as big as you actually need to be to achieve that thing that you want to do. And rather than trying to grow larger than that, instead help someone else to do the same. And that's the way as entrepreneurs that we can cultivate that decentralized ecosystem. <laughs> and decentralized ecosystems work. I mean, just consider horizontal management methodologies like holacracy and sociocracy and consider the success of decentralized organizations like uh, Burtzor, which now is the largest home health care provider in the Netherlands. Precisely, they create these decentralized pods and create a federated network <laughs> And use that then to be able to work efficiently and also locally and also in a very personalized fashion. And they're also reducing management overhead in such a way that it also makes them financially competitive. And that's part of the reason why they have taken over the Dutch home healthcare market. And they've been working with their competitors to help transform them so they can do the same. So I, I find this story particularly inspiring. And we need to understand that if we're tired of, for example, Silicon Valley big tech, right? And if we want to fight Facebook, the majority of the attempts that we've made is we're trying to replace Facebook with another Facebook. 
But I don't I think, think that's going to work because I think that we need to replace these big tech companies with a de decentralized ecosystem. Otherwise, we're just reproducing the problem. One of the things that stands out to me is this statement or question we ask of what's the point of the exponentiality we seek in startup growth? And you say it's to reach an exit. I think there's maybe a disconnect between the narrative that venture capital tells the public and maybe that founders tell themselves in terms of what they're trying to achieve with the same startup companies. So as you said, the Silicon Valley venture capital model is pursuing an exit at a very healthy multiple, uh, preferably many thousand times their investment. You say, what happens after that? It's a really interesting question. Quite often those companies float on the stock market and the retail investor gets stuck with a, a tree that's done all of its growing. And we see that time and time again. So if we look at that through that lens, we're really looking at venture capital being an extractive force that is harnessing this pursuit of growth, which is really found agreed to extract capital from our economy under the guise of exponential growth and distribute wealth to different people. Is this really just advancing wealth inequality on a large scale? Yes. There's two things that are happening here with this financial extraction and in particular with the hyper growth style in which we're doing it. The first thing is things like IPOs, initial public offerings on the market. What's happening is we start out with startups, right? And these startups are essentially like factory farm chickens. We're force feeding them with investment capital so they can grow plump and juicy and attractive looking. So they can grow exponentially until their moment of liquidation, which is basically the moment when the financial value is pulled out of the company, thus leaving a dysfunctional carcass of the company left behind. The problem here is that in that act of hypergrowth, the business is going to be cash bleeding because the only way to be able to grow that quickly is to hire quickly. <laughs> and of course, people are massively expensive, so it's very difficult to be profitable in such a situation. Similarly, oftentimes they're subsidizing customer acquisitions, selling things below cost. And this is when you get the situation of the WeWorks that are spending cash five times faster than they're getting it from customers. And of course, the question we don't ask often enough is, okay, right, so with these all these cash-bleeding hyper-growth companies, first of all, do they ever become profitable? Nine times out of 10, no. And for the 10th, we're trying to have them become a unicorn, this company with a $1 billion US dollar valuation or higher. But the dirty secret that unicorns have is that 90% are bleeding cash. Only 10% actually make it to profitability. And this is with very large, very well-established unicorns, such as Uber and Airbnb. And you start asking the question, first of all, how do they survive if they're losing money for so long? And second of all, whose money actually are they spending? <laughs> is it the greater fool theory? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so really, venture capital is about creating an illusion of attractiveness in a business mm -hmm. such that they can shift who is the end buyer of the equity in that business. It's essentially, it's a shell game. Yes, exactly. And to be more precise, it's a pump and dump scheme. 
Because what happens is you're taking this inherently cash-leading thing, right? It has no business model. It's not even aspiring to a business model. <laughs> and we are hyping this thing. We are pumping it up with all kinds of great stories in the media and, and our visionary founders. And then we are dumping it onto the public markets. And indeed, it's precisely because of the greater full theory <laughs> that investors are buying it at that moment. So retail investors, they buy into the hype. So do institutional investors. And institutional investors as well have been up until recently moving into riskier asset classes precisely because the interest rates were so low <laughs> for such a long period of time that the more traditionally safe investments that they would have had were not paying anything. So for this reason, increasingly, they're giving their money to VCs. They're gambling on the IPOs in the market. But the problem is the majority of the time, if it was cash bleeding pre-IPO, chances are it's probably still going to be cash bleeding post-IPO. I mean, nothing inherent in the business model has changed. And at that point, basically the investors withdraw. They sell their stock at that point because they cash out. That was the moment they were waiting for. And everyone else who's left now is stuck with the non-business model, the non-profitable business model of the company. It could keep growing out of greater full theory and speculation if you're in a growth economy, because then people will be buoyant about the whole thing. And, and it might keep growing for a while. But this is the problem then that the moment that the interest rates go up or the moment that we have some kind of world event that causes the economy to go into recession, that's when the music stops. And that's the point when the last investors are the ones that are left holding the bag. Right. But at that point, the initial investors and founders have already left. So it's basically somebody else's problem. It's a pretty toxic environment or industry. Let's call it an industry. It's what it is. Why do we celebrate this extractive pursuit of growth at the expense of the many? Really, we are farming capital away from a larger group of people to benefit a few. Why do we celebrate that? We celebrate it because those with capital set the narrative. They control the media. They start the incubators who are teaching us how to do business. They are giving endowments to business schools like Stanford and Harvard and MIT. And there's a certain agenda, of course, that comes along with all of that money. The whole purpose really of textile incubators is maximizing the returns for whoever happens to be putting cash in. And most of the time, the incubators themselves take equity in the startups, which basically puts the incubators in a position where they have a conflict of interest financially with the startups because perhaps the best choice for them was organic growth and creating a nice lifestyle company. Instead, the incubator is going to be pushing them towards exponential growth and exiting precisely because it's in the best financial interest for the incubator. But nobody's talking about this. <laughs> if we were to throw venture capital into the broader finance industry. I think it's fair to say it's at that level of significance now where we can consider it part of the, the larger machine. Can you give some sense of how extractive the finance industry has become to our society? Yeah, absolutely. Part of the financial extraction is also in recognizing that what we're doing with this hypergrowth model and with trying to cultivate unicorns is actually structural monopoly forming. We're creating monopolies, which we need to start asking the question of why does this not violate antitrust law? If you consider the United States, 65% of venture capitalists get their money from pension funds. <laughs> so when those cash bleeding unicorns or aspirant unicorns are bleeding money, they're actually bleeding pensioner money. 
our money is what they're spending. So we like to use the word unicorn. And again, this is about narrative setting and in using this term unicorn, but we can actually replace that with the word pension fund subsidized monopoly forming because that's what it is. And there's also a really interesting term that was coined by the sci-fi author Cory Doctorow called enchidification. He's talking about large tech companies like Amazon or Google. And basically the argument is first they get a large surplus from investors. So basically you get a huge cash infusion. The first thing that you're going to do is you're going to use that surplus to treat your users well. So you're going to sell things at below cost. You're going to give away things for free. You're going to make sure that the quality is higher than all of the competition because you have more money to be able to, to put into it. And you eventually get the consumers hooked. You might always, for example, like, like Facebook once did pro promise that no, but actually really we're the privacy friendly <laughs> social media platform. Don't use MySpace. Come over to us because we're actually going to respect you, which is all well and good until the second stage of enchidification is then once you've gotten the users hooked and the users get hooked because of network effects and once all their friends are basically using that platform it gets harder to leave then they take that surplus and take it away from the users and give it to business partners what they say is hey business partners we've got this huge base of consumers here and now we're going to make them accessible to you for low fees we're going to make it really easy for you to sell things the customer service is going to be amazing. It's going to be super streamlined and it's going to be very easy to do. And by the way, about that privacy respecting bit, no, actually we've been logging everything and instead okay. we're now going to give you ways to completely tailored and using all of their individual preferences, be able to target them to the greatest possible degree. So the businesses like this, <laughs> so the businesses now all get on board because they're finding that this is extremely lucrative, such as with Amazon, and they start migrating their sales onto the platform. Because if you can make more on Amazon than you're making through your own distribution channels, then why wouldn't you be using Amazon? And at a certain point, you, the, these business partners grow to depend on Amazon and then their own distribution and sales mechanisms weaken. Well, this is when we get led to the third stage of enchidification, which is when at that point, the shareholders take the surpluses away from the business partners once they're locked in and then claw back as much value as possible for themselves, just leaving as many scraps as possible to prevent both the users and the business partners from getting so pissed off that they start leaving. And it's a really fine line, right? <laughs> now, all of a sudden, the users are finding they're being treated worse, their privacy is being violated, they're seeing ads rather than the things they actually are searching for and the, the things that they want to see. The business is also, the fees are going up and now they find themselves in bidding wars with other companies to get the eyeballs that they had before. So the platform is nowhere near as profitable as it once was. And at that point, you need to understand that just one small scandal or one thing can tip it with Twitter, right? We never could imagine how we could do without Twitter until Elon Musk took over. And now a lot of us understand very well how we can do without Twitter. So <clears throat> it can just take one thing to tip it. And the thing with network effects is they're a double-edged sword because as much as having people enter the platform is sticky and causes people to stay, once your friends are gone, then that also is going to pressure everyone else to leave, which means then that platform company can basically disappear as quickly as it started. But the problem with this then is the entire ecosystem of both users and businesses that have grown dependent on this platform 
If Amazon, for example, were to suddenly collapse tomorrow, we've now left a huge gaping hole in the ecosystem because with their monopoly position, Amazon basically put all our local bookstores out of business. So we now have nowhere else to go to drink our coffee and read our books. But the moment that Amazon, if it were to collapse, then we wouldn't have that left either. And the problem is when these companies die, and that's the final stage of enshittification after the shareholders claw back the value, then the companies die, is that we're left Uh, worse off than we started. And we spent probably 20, 30 years then creating an ecosystem which enriched a small number of people, but then left us in a more precarious place than when we started. And this is really what's happening. We are seeing a broader trend of very significant wealth extraction from a large segment of society to a few people. Now, You talk about the potential collapse of some of these really significant players in ecosystems that develop over time, and then their collapse forms this vacuum. If we have a look at that and we say, look, that wouldn't be so bad if it was just going to affect business. But you said before that the people with capital control the narrative. We're seeing some pretty worrying signs within our democracy and our society, both in America, certainly in Australia, and I'm sure in Europe as well where democracy seems under threat. We're seeing a rise in populist authoritarianism and the policies that go along with that and a rise in ignorance and extremes, real political extremes, a further departure away from the middle. Is there a relationship between this wealth extraction and what feels like a, like we're losing our grip on democracy. Yes, absolutely. A lot of those who are doing the extracting are then pumping that cash back into political lobby <laughs> and marketing and focus groups, and some of them control the media. <laughs> the problem here is that companies, oftentimes, they can donate very large sums of money in the United States, especially to super PACs, who then give almost unlimited war chests for the promotion of certain politicians. Historically speaking, these super PACs have funded the conservative right more than they've really funded the progressive left. Why the right gives more is probably because they know that the politicians on the right are going to also create a more, let's say, fiscally friendly environment for their businesses. So there is direct financial gain to be had from this. So a lot of this lobby is also financially incentivized. Whereas on the progressive left, it's not financially incentivized. So it's more just like about doing the right thing. And of course, philanthropic motivations don't play as heavily as greed does, which is part of the reason why the right is always better funded than the left by business and by high net worth individuals. And if you consider also in finance, some of the fund managers, we need to understand that investment is political because if you consider the effect of which fund managers we're giving our money to, There's a huge difference between, for example, George Soros, who then with the Open State Foundation is funding all of these pro-democracy projects and human rights projects, versus giving that same money to Robert Mercer, who then puts money into the Trump campaign and Breitbart. (laughs) The other thing also is it's the companies themselves that are externalizing costs onto the environment. So we need to pay a lot more attention than we have been to corporate governance. And also, we need to take, in general, 
a systems thinking approach. We also need to get people to understand what's happening because the other problem too is that right now there's a very powerful marketing narrative that's being driven by those with capital and people don't actually understand how the flow of money works. And this was actually said very well in a wonderful talk by Anne Pettifor during the Beyond Growth Conference. And she basically said, if we can teach people about the financial system and get them to understand how fees work in the finance sector, and if we could get people to understand the flow of money and what happened, for example, during the pandemic and where all that money went and how little of it is going to the people, then they would start being upset at the right people. And then they would start voting accordingly. But the problem is, how do you explain the complexities of the financial system to people that don't understand and don't necessarily even want to understand? And I think that this is part of the difficult position that people like you and also me find ourselves in. You'll hear me use the word layperson, and I don't mean it in an insulting fashion. I tend to consider myself an informed layperson. I would like to try and stay a layperson for as long as possible because I think that a layperson narrative is the way that we facilitate change. If I'm to look back at our conversation today and pull out some themes, you said before that we're in this cycle. And I was thinking as you were speaking that we're in this positive feedback loop. And if we look at this growing extremes, these growing inequalities, and we try and have a look at some trends that stand out and identify causes, we've got an extractive venture capital industry that is an elaborate or a large scale pump and dump scheme, which is about extracting capital from a large group of people to benefit a few and using really what are not traditional commercial means to do that, a departure from what, is, what has always been accepted commercial practices around running a business profitably rather than subsidizing your customers, but also having a look at the broader finance industry as being this tool of extraction for the benefit of shareholders. And then we're tying that into the fact that the beneficiaries of these processes are people that are donating money to political campaigns who are advocating or pursuing policies that suit their interests. We really have this positive feedback loop. And we talk about this growing zeitgeist undertone of democracy slipping away. Is it that this feedback loop just gets bigger and bigger every time it goes around and we're finally now experiencing it at what looks like maturity and we're going to start seeing the connection between all of these things. You say it's about educating people who may not want to understand how the finance industry works. I think maybe we're getting to that point where we don't have that choice anymore. We have to face these things and have a look at everything, how everything's linked. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think we need to somehow get this message of financial extraction to influencers. I mean, maybe we can start with Taylor Swift, right? I did a panel at South by Southwest in Sydney with an accountant. His name's Professor Nick McWigan, and he's the head of diversity, equity, and access at Monash University in Australia. And he's by qualification, an accountant, he advocates for a fundamental shift in the accounting profession as being the instigator to change the way we measure companies' success, the way we look at fiduciary duties, all sorts of things. But he deals in this really complex space with really well-informed subject matter experts. And you say, we need to get this message to the influencers. And one of the things that Nick is doing really well 
is engaging with artists to share a really complex narrative through a way that only artists or creatives and expressives can. And that is by communicating this feeling and this feeling of sort of inevitability around this problem we're facing and needing to solve it. And I think I'm seeing more and more people starting to say, how do we cross this almost like cell membrane between what the informed people in the industry know is the problem and what the consumer, the, the end user understands about the system they're a part of. How do we do that? And I think it's probably the question of our time because you and I sit here and have these conversations and it makes sense to us. And I'm sure you have moments where you do want to hit your head against the wall and say, why are we not acting on this? Because it's so clear. Wow. I think, yeah, I think there's so many, so much needs to be done in terms of bringing it into the zeitgeist and yep. breaking it down. And I think we, we have a terminology problem as well. I think we use such yes. complex language. Yeah. I mean, that passion is there. If you look at the youth movement and the climate movement, they are embracing degrowth increasingly. But I think, though, that degrowth alienates people. And I think that with the passion with which they are spreading the gospel of degrowth, the problem is we're spreading a kind of like, let's destroy things, let's break it all down ethos. And this, even politically, is really putting people off. It's got synergies with the socialist versus capitalist argument. It became this binary black or white. And if you were one, then the other was bad and vice versa. It's become a similar thing. I think one of the downsides as well is Marjorie Kelly says that the left is highly disorganized and fragmented and the right mm -hmm. has a really strong North Star and is really well organized. Yeah. And, and that's a huge problem as well. And the division within the left is getting progressively worse. I think instead, rather than thinking about what we need to stop and what we need to end and what we need to kill and what we need to fight and what we need to attack, I think instead we need to start asking ourselves the question of what we need to build. What positive solutions can we find? What hopeful solutions can we find? Because I think we, we need a hopeful message after all the fear and anxiety of climate and all the other challenges we're facing society-wide. I mean, People want to know how to fix things. And we've spoken about financial extraction and the broken financial system and the broken business system, but then the question really becomes, how do we fix it? And the way that we fix it, the tools that we need to fix it are to create financially non-extractive businesses and financially non-extractive financial instruments and companies. That's how we can fix it. Because from taking a systems thinking perspective, it's all about incentives Companies are externalizing costs onto society and onto the environment because they're incentivized to do so. If you want to change organically the behavior, you change the financial incentive. And going back to Dana Meadows and leverage points, these are the leverage points I think that we need to focus on. We can create financially non-extractive businesses by harnessing different elements of steward ownership. For example, there's a lot of companies that are completely foundation owned. So basically the sole shareholder is a foundation. However, it's not enough, right? I mean, as we can see from OpenAI, they were also foundation owned and one can see how they got mission drift. The problem here was that they lacked something called a golden share and a golden share basically prevents sale of equity, <laughs> which basically means that the financial value of the company remains locked into the company. <laughs> So what we actually need is strong asset locks, and that's actually the topic that we need to be speaking about. <laughs> so other things like putting our mission into our statutes, having compensation caps, th this kind of stuff also can help. 
But really, the big question that we have is how do we create companies where we can lock the financial value inside of the company? Because we have at this moment low profit entity forms, things like the L3C, the CIC in the UK, B corporations also in the United States. They're trying to balance the triple bottom line of people, planet, and profit. But the problem is that, as Mohammed Yunus says, if people and planet come into conflict, profit always wins, right? It's just a question to what degree. So what this means is actually we need to take the extractive profit uh, out of the equation to begin with. But we get confused at this point because the word profit actually has a double meaning. And the first meaning of the word profit is reinvestable margin. So if I sell you something, I put a margin on top of that, and then that margin gets reinvested back into my company for growth and stability. If there's no margin, I have no company. It's game over. But the second meaning of the word profit is financial extraction. And this pays for my Lamborghini and my private jet. And not only does this not help the company and it's toxic from an incentive standpoint, but it's actually a competitive disadvantage to the company on the market because cash that's extracted from a company is cash that you can no longer reinvest in research and development or paying your staff better or making products and services cheaper for your customers. So, I mean, it's better to keep that cash in the company. But the problem, though, is that these two meanings, reinvestable margin and financial extraction, are embedded into the same word. And this creates a lot of confusion because then a founder will say, well, of course my company needs to be profitable to be successful. And if he's talking about reinvestable margin, I completely agree. <laughs> but of course, if he's talking about financial extraction, not so much. That problem also comes back when we're talking about anything not for profit. So in the cases of nonprofits and NGOs, they understand full well there shouldn't be financial extraction. That doesn't belong to a nonprofit. But then they also mistakenly think that they shouldn't have reinvestable margin which keeps nonprofits stuck in what I would call the subsidy trap, which is basically like the poverty trap for poor people when they're stuck in a rock and a hard place that they have financial welfare they're getting from the state, but the moment they want to make their lives better by getting a job or starting a business, they're at risk of losing the welfare. Well, these nonprofits are in the same situation because they get these subsidies and these donations, which are vulnerable. They can very easily dry up. But the moment they want to move over to more sustainable forms of financing, such as, well, business, then they're actually at risk of losing their charitable status by the tax authorities because they're like, hey, you're an NGO. You're not supposed to be acting like a business. And this is an existential <laughs> crisis for a nonprofit because the moment they lose their charitable status, then donations are no longer tax deductible, which means that the only form of income that they did have is at risk of drying up. And then the third problem that we have with the double meaning of the word profit is in the triple bottom line of social enterprise. So people, planet, profit. Oh, but, you know, but there's that word profit again. <laughs> so actually what it is, it's people, planet, reinvestable margin, financial extraction. So actually the triple bottom line of social enterprise that we need is people, planet, reinvestable margin. And that financial extraction is the greenwashing. So if we want to eliminate greenwashing from social enterprise, and ESG, by the way, it really is that simple as eliminating the financial extraction. That brings us to the end of our chat with Melanie. Thank you so much for joining us today. If people want to follow your work, where can they see more of you online? 
So feel free, first of all, to connect with me on LinkedIn because I'm constantly posting new things and resources. Also, if you send me a message, I'm usually pretty friendly and will respond if you ever need anything. Another way to find me is to go to the Nonprofit Ventures website. So that's nonprofit.ventures. And that's it for today's episode. As always, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please remember that sharing it on social media with your thoughts is a really valuable way to support us. If you haven't already, please rate and review the show on your chosen podcast platform. These are the things that help us bring you the world's most impressive thinkers, and it helps us on our journey toward erasing financial inequality, one of humanity's greatest threats today.